Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and yeah, it's the Centered from Reality podcast, Monday evening. I hope you had a great weekend. I know mine was pretty solid, honestly. Can't really complain too much. Let's see. Uh, just enjoyed some all-over-the-place weather. My mom wanted to go to a Packers game, and she was still in town. So we went and saw the Packers play the Chicago Bears. Always fun. You know, as bad as, uh, as, bad as Green Bay has been this year, it's always funny that they can always beat the Bears no matter what. It's as American as apple pie. Like, there's nothing more constant than death and taxes and beating the Bears, it seems like. So that was good. You know, my Packers have just looked awful this year. So it was nice that, you know, got to bring the mother to finally see the Packers play. And they won, and, you know, Bears fans are usually pretty nice. There's obviously some crazy ones in every stadium, but we sat next to some great people, had a good time, and was glad to get that done. You know, it was in the 30s, but at least we had some sun, so it wasn't just, like, brutal death out there. Uh, Did get some people yelling at me for wearing my Rodgers jersey. One guy said he should be in jail. Uh, I actually... I heard one guy, and I wasn't going to get into this, but, hey, why not? I, I heard one guy talking about how Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers should both be in jail. I'm sure a lot of you know Brett Favre basically defrauded the Mississippi welfare fund to keep it kind of simplified. And so, yeah, maybe he should. Maybe he should be in jail. I could kind of get behind that. But the guy said Rodgers should be in jail because, you know, he lied about the vaccine and got people sick. And I just, I don't know if that's, that would have to be based on the idea that if you're vaccinated, you can't spread it. And I, don't, I just haven't seen enough information out there to say that if you're vaccinated, you can't spread it. I know if you're vaccinated, you can still get it. So I, you know, I just heard these guys talking. I'm going, oh, God. Oh, God. But anyways, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But there's not, a love, there's not a lot of love for Aaron Rodgers anymore, I guess, is how I would put it. Uh, Chicago pretty much hates him. And I guess when he owns the Bears, practically, uh, you would have the same thoughts. So anyways, yeah, U.S. men's soccer team lost on Saturday as well. I guess we're starting with Sports Corner here today. Got up to watch it. And, you know, the team has a lot of hope. I think they're going to be good. But when you watch them play a team like the Netherlands or you watch, like, Brazil play or even Spain, which is also pretty young, you kind of just go, the U.S. has a lot, of, a lot of work to do still. I mean, the Netherlands had way less possession, but they could score. And actually, ironically, the 3-1 to one game, the U.S. lost to the Netherlands. The Dutch actually scored on themselves, so the U.S. didn't even score the one goal they got. <laughs> Um, and, you know, they, they dominated possession, but the Dutch just kind of precisely picked them off. It was just the precision of it was impressive to see. So congrats to the Dutch. It was too bad the U.S. got out, but I think there's a lot of hope there down the road, but they do need to find a little more um, precision in their scoring and a little more energy up front. But the possession and their ability to kind of dominate that was at least impressive to me. So anyways... Um, Trump is our our buddy Donald down in Mar-a-Lago. He is basically saying the quiet part out loud at this point. And I'm going to talk about more of this tomorrow and the Matt Taibbi Twitter files or whatever you're going to call them and all that jazz and why I think the right has flawed free speech ideas. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. But Trump has kind of just called for some sort of... uh, I guess suspension of the Constitution on Truth Social, he had a unique post, which I think really, really just said the quiet part out loud. And, you know, he basically is saying because he feels like the election was stolen from him, 
that we need to basically suspend the Constitution, break all norms, and do all this stuff just because... <laughs> Just because uh, he feels like he was wronged. Of course, this is all in the new revelations from Twitter's seemingly just corporate greed and control in dealing with Hunter Biden. But like I said, tomorrow we'll get into more of that in detail. But it's just interesting to see Trump finally just say that about the Constitution. Like, we need to have a new election. I should be put back into power. We should just kind of forget all the norms the founders put into place, right? And... It's just nice to see that Trump, you know, dines with Holocaust deniers and seems okay with suspending the Constitution if he believes it's better for him. It's a nice little situation. You know, what, two weeks ago, it it seemed like he was being kind of quiet after he announced he was running, and now he's really caught up with himself. It's like he's back back in full, back in black, you know, and... I <laughs> I wonder if this is going to hurt him at all. You also have to wonder when he's talking about the Constitution like this, what do people like Ted Cruz or Mike Lee have to, th- uh, have to say about this? Because, you know, Ted Cruz and Mike Lee are always staunch, staunch constitutional conservatives. They claim to be experts on the Constitution. Everything's the Constitution with them. I'm pretty sure Ted Cruz probably is more attracted to the Constitution than his wife, based on at least his willingness to let Trump berate his wife. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But... These guys are constitutional hawks, and now the guy that they've allied with and tried to overturn an election with doesn't seem to like the Constitution very much. So, you know, it's all just a, a circle circle jerk of hypocrisy. That's all I can really say. And I think David Graham said it best in an article today in The Atlantic about all this. He said, in quotes, Trump's incoherent constitutional philosophy summed up. The Constitution provides a first option, but if for some reason he doesn't like it, he's happy to discard it. I think that's true. Trump's one of those people who, like, wears an American flag and says, like, I'm a patriot and I love the Constitution. But then if things go bad or maybe they don't go in his favor, he's willing to kind of just throw that out, right? And I feel like a call to suspend the Constitution is kind of the most, it's obviously radical, but it's kind of the natural articulation or outcome of Trump's demonstrated views of the Constitution, right? It's kind of guidelines, but really not a binding law or a binding document, Really fun. Really fun. And um, I, I also just don't think Trump actually really knows what's in the Constitution, other than it's a document that his party likes to say they follow, you know? Like, it, it seems to work out in that favor for him. I know he's probably pretty versed on the Fifth Amendment of the Bill of Rights, right? Or the Second Amendment, and maybe his flawed view of the First Amendment, but... This just shows me that the Constitution, like a lot of other things, is just kind of a symbol for people like him, and they don't actually care about it whatsoever. Again, I don't know if this is going to hurt voters. We'll talk about the free speech and the nihilism that I think leads to this tomorrow, but none of this surprises me anymore. Maybe I'm becoming a nihilist, too. Just nothing matters, but <laughs> fun times. Anyways, uh, another little quick, quick thing before we move on to the main topics, which are the Georgia runoffs. Some interesting revelations of Russians fighting Russians in Ukraine, kind of part of the Ukrainian cause. And then I want to talk about Iran and some flawed reports about the morality police going away and why I don't think those reports are genuine or accurate. But anyways, there's been a report, the first, I guess you could say the first published report about the World Cup so far and greenhouse gas emissions. And apparently, and I didn't know this until yesterday, but apparently there were hopes that this was going to be some carbon neutral event. 
there's an irony about that to me as a, a carbon neutral event in Qatar, which is a huge oil country, right, in the desert. So think about all the electricity you have to cool all this stuff down and all the workers. Like carbon neutral seems like the antithesis of Qatar to me, but I guess that was a big goal. But published last year, FIFA and Qatari organizers basically put out a report estimating that the World Cup would generate 3.6 million tons of CO2 emissions which definitely adds up more. Again, hopes of a neutral World Cup were literally something they were talking about. 3.6 million tons to me doesn't sound like that, and apparently that would be some of the most ever. And anyways, it makes sense, though, if you think of the event having thousands of thousands of fans, all the electricity to do that, new stadiums built, the middle of the desert. Yeah, that's not going to probably be carbon neutral. I'm sorry. And anyways... Apparently, FIFA and the Qatari organizers actually really underestimated this report of 3.6 million tons of CO2 emissions. I don't know if it was intentional or they're really bad at what they do or it was just a bad way to, to do this analysis, but there's another report in May of 2020 by Carbon Market Watch, which is, a, I guess you could say, a climate watchdog, and it found that the official forecast failed to account accurately for the emissions generated. And the economist... Uh, notes that it seems like the true emissions would be closer to 5 million tons. And apparently how FIFA has measured this is not accurate, blah, blah, blah. And interestingly, it seems like Qatar just wants to make this look good because obviously we have the America World Cup coming up where it's going to be Mexico, Canada, and the United States doing it for the next venue. And I think they want to look good or maybe make themselves not look quite as bad. But like I said at the top of this little segment is it's really hard to ever imagine carbon neutral, carbon neutral in a place that's kind of runs on carbon, basically, you know. So just another fun thing is uh, the Qatar World Cup is breaking more records. And again, I'm a hypocrite. I'm watching it. I enjoy watching soccer. And, you know, in these stressful times, you do want to turn to something like that. So uh, please don't hate me too much, but. I do enjoy watching it as much as every day there's something new that pisses me off that you find out here. So good times, good times. Before we leave the U.S. again, I want to go back to Georgia. I have Georgia on my mind here. And I want to just briefly talk about the runoff that is finally happening tomorrow. Again, this is being recorded on Monday afternoon. And probably Wednesday, Wednesday or Thursday, we'll do more coverage on this. Just gives us more time to see what happens because for now, I just want to give my final predictions because even though the runoff is tomorrow, I've at least read some articles and CNN even says that they're unsure if we will actually see the results in the runoff tomorrow. So time will tell. <laughs> time will definitely tell. And of course, a lot of early voting has already occurred. And now it's going to be interesting to see if there's kind of a final push before the end is here. I saw tonight on TV, Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock gave their kind of closing statements. Our buddy Donald, after his just really good image week, is apparently doing some sort of tele-rally or something for Herschel Walker. Again, I would not want Trump even near this. I wouldn't want to touch him with like a million-foot pole at this point, but I guess he's doing this. Maybe it'll help. Who knows? But I was reading a good Washington Post article this morning about how Raphael Warnock actually did do better in Fulton County in the midterms, so back in November, than he did in 2020 in the runoff against Kelly Loeffler. Remember the Kelly Loeffler who called him 
think called Raphael Warnock a radical liberal like a thousand times. Like that was the only thing she could say. I, I remember watching that debate and it was kind of like she was glitching. Radical Raphael Warnock, radical Raphael Warnock. It's like just a glitch happened or something. But anyways, the article discusses how Warnock ran 2.4 percentage points ahead of his 2022, or sorry, 2021 margin in Fulton County, a Democratic bastion that includes most of Atlanta. But he did about the same in the state's suburban counties. So it looks like Warnock, though, at the same time, is doing worse in rural Georgia than he did in 2020 and 2021. That doesn't particularly surprise me. And we have to, I mean, I, I feel like even since that last runoff and those last, you know, the last presidential election in 2020, I think there's more of an rural, rural urban divide than there even was a couple years ago. So, you know, nothing really surprises me in that regard anymore. But it, it is too bad to see there. But Herschel Walker actually, in these midterms, and this is an interesting stat, he improved upon Loeffler's margins in rural counties by nearly two points. So you're, you're seeing that trend, which is interesting. So this could come down to turnout. And also, it looks like the suburbs are slightly in the favor of Warnock, though he's lost a lot of energy there, I guess you could say. And I think this race could be interesting in Georgia because while Walker is an awful candidate, both candidates are black. And I have to wonder if this could help or hurt Walker, I guess, kind of depending. But it is a different demographic dynamic in this than, you know, Kelly Loeffler versus, versus you know, Raphael Warnock. Kelly Loeffler, kind of a sycophantic weirdo, richest lady in the Senate, was just there for a brief time. Not a great candidate, so, but again, I guess, God, as I say that, those words come out my mouth. I don't exactly think Herschel Walker's exactly stepping up to the plate here. But anyways, I think another way to look at this runoff, though, is best said by Fred Hicks, who's I believe is a Democratic strategist in Georgia. He says here in quotes, Warnock is trying to replicate the coalition that elected him last year, while Walker is working to recreate the coalition that elected Governor Kemp in November. And the runoff will depend on which one of them is successful, end quotes. And I think this is honestly interesting. And I, I think because of what he said, I, I think there's some interesting takeaways from that, right? Because we have Brian Kemp doing campaigning for Herschel Walker because he understands, like, he, he's actually being quite coy with how he's saying it. He's not telling people I love Herschel Walker because I'm sure if you got him in a room and gave him a bourbon, he would be like, hell no, I don't like Herschel Walker's a nutbag. But he's kind of phrasing it as, we need a check on Joe Biden, and at least we can keep a 50-50 Senate with Kamala Harris being the tiebreaker. So he's kind of putting it as Herschel's just going to be there as kind of a wild card check. Probably not the worst way to put this, to be honest. But you then, you, you then have to kind of wonder, though predictions are difficult, are the same people that voted for Kemp really going to want to turn out for Herschel Walker, who's just kind of a sad can candidate, right? I don't think Herschel Walker can really recreate the popularity and the coalition that elected Kemp. From the understanding I have of the midterms, Kemp appealed to moderates and independents as well as Republicans. He's also kind of a standard Republican with broad support in Georgia. He's not seen as one of the Trumpy nuts. Like while he probably agreed with Trump on things, he was able to certify the election for Biden, and he doesn't seem to believe all of Trump's BS. And Walker is complex because his campaign prior to, I guess, the Teller rally tonight, 
has kind of not asked Trump to campaign over the last few weeks. But then at the same time, Walker is kind of a creation of Trump. And it's clear that Walker's more on the Trumpy Fox News side than the Kemp just like, I'm a standard Republican who cuts taxes and blah, blah, blah. And it seems like this campaign wants everything and may not get anything, right? Like the Walker campaign is complex. And first, I think if the Senate was actually impacted by this more. So let's say like if Walker wins, they control the Senate. I think it would be different. I think I think Republicans would come out to vote for him so that the Republicans could control the Senate. That would be huge. However, all of this all of this is not that important in a in the grand scheme of things for Republicans because all this will do is decide if Democrats have one extra seat or if VP Harris is the tiebreaker. And I don't know, but I think that would discourage more kind of moderate-minded people or people on the fence about voting to, uh, for Walker to turn out, right? Like, I remember seeing the lieutenant governor of Georgia, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, but he did mention that he could just not, you know, not get himself to vote for Walker once he was in the voting booth. And you have to wonder, like, the guy who voted for Kemp, who's seen Kemp's record in Georgia, like it or not, is he really going to go, yeah, Herschel's really my brand, or I'm going to, you know, it'd be also easier, I guess, to go the other way is if, you know, midterms, you're you're in the ballot box, you know, looking at the ticket, and you're just like, oh, there's Herschel Walker, I guess he's a Republican, I'll vote for him, he's on the ticket with other people like Kemp I like, but now you have to go out of your way to vote for this guy who likes to talk about vampires and werewolves, and he has this weird story about, like, the monkey and the grass being greener, and I don't know. It's it's like it seems like English is his second language and it's it's kind of troubling. And I just wonder how many people will do that where they're like, yeah, I already voted in the midterms. I'm not going to go out for Herschel Walker. And also it seems like the RNC and others have somewhat kind of given up on Walker as well. So I could be wrong, but I think this is going to be in Warnock's favor going forward. Also there's a political article or Politico article from today, which seems to echo my thoughts. The article's called, in quotes here, Republican hopes fade as Warnock momentum picks up in Georgia. And it discusses how the outcome will inevitably be close. Obviously, it was close in the general. It'll be close in this as well. But right now, polls do indicate that Warnock is somewhat favored, somewhat favored. And a lot of state Republicans do not see any reason to believe the opposite could be true. Like, I don't know if over the last couple of days, Herschel Walker's done anything to get people to go, oh, hell yeah, I want to vote for that guy now. The article also notes here in quotes that there's been little polling of the runoff, but a CNN survey released Friday showed Warnock with a narrow lead over Walker among likely voters, 52 to 48 percent. Independent voters broke for Warnock 61 to 36, according to the poll conducted by SSRS from November 25th to the 29th. And, uh, I mean... I do know a lot of the people that would probably be voting for Trump or Warnock would also give CNN the middle finger and not even listen to them. So I don't know if like those polls are actually very useful for us. But at the same time, I also do see I also do see libertarians who voted for that third party candidate who are definitely not going to vote for Walker. Like libertarians turn out for unique type of people. And <laughs> look, Herschel Walker is not a libertarian. He's like completely the opposite of anything close to that. And also, like other MAGA-inspired candidates, Herschel Walker seems to appeal to a very specific group of people. Again, not the ones that the independents like, not the moderates or the center-right type of people like myself. 
Also, it, I mean, it, let's just be honest. The elephant in the room, <laughs> elephant in the room, right, Republicans. But anyways, it also does not help that Walker even seemed to confuse which branch of government he was running for. And also, he said he would make the United States the best state in the United States. So, like, like I said, if English isn't his second language, he also might need to go back to, like, high school geography or middle school geography. I don't know. I just really hope for the sake of all sanity that Hawk, that Walker doesn't win here. But nothing would really surprise me at this point if he did win. Like, honestly, like, I, I do think I do think Raphael Warnock wins at the end of the day. But you can never be sure, so we'll just have to get back and see. Yeah. So I want to start by going over something kind of lifting because I, I want to talk about Ukraine. And, of course, if you type in Ukraine right now, you'll see that there's another round of bombings on Kiev involving, you know, water depots electronic or electric infrastructure all the all the stuff that usually you want intact when the winter's coming and of course a few weeks ago we were lucky to see that basically winter was coming late like there was kind of a heat wave in october but yeah i'd say adios to that so it's still i mean i've, I've covered it at nauseum but it's going to be a fairly long fairly long winter to to, to say the least so Let's go over something uplifting and then get into less lifting, I guess you could say. But basically, there are hundreds or probably more like thousands of Russians fighting alongside Ukrainians to help keep the town of Bakhmut, Bakhmut, I'm thinking that's how it's pronounced, which is the current epicenter of the war in Ukrainian hands. And yeah, so there are actually people from Russia who are like, screw this Putin thing. I am not going to fight alongside the genocidal army that's just, like, kind of ruining Ukrainian life. I'm going to go there and fight alongside them. A lot of these guys are Orthodox Christians who just don't see it in their faith. And there's a good online article I've been reading that has an interview with one of these guys. And he goes by the call sign Caesar. Obviously doesn't want to give away much information because, yeah, things could be bad for you. And it's pretty interesting, though. He writes, uh, or the article writes in the interview with him, A soldier in a Ukrainian uniform morosely contemplates the ruins of an orthodox monastery in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region. The man says, from the first day of the war, my, my heart, the heart of a real Russian man, a real Christian, told me that I had to be here to defend the people of Ukraine. We are now fighting in the Bakhmut region. This is the hottest part of the front. And this guy that is being interviewed apparently moved his family to Ukraine, which is kind of interesting. Like, you would think... It wouldn't be safer than Russia, but I guess in different ways maybe it is. But he says he wanted them there because it was safer. And I guess if you're someone who really views the regime to be a problem, maybe you would prefer them to be there. Now, this guy also claims that he's had to kill over a dozen of his own, you know, Russian type. And I can imagine that would be hard. He's also basically expressed the thoughts of like, once we help the Ukrainians, we're going to take this back to Russia. And that, that brings up some interesting questions in my head about, like, obviously there's only about a thousand of them at the max, I believe. So it's not going to be some giant, like, civil war in Russia. But you do have to wonder if there was, like, some sort of spark in Russia. Like, what would that do with the population? Would they still be willing to go along with Putin's bullshit, or would they decide to stand up for that? And, like, you have to wonder, like, what is next in Russia? That's what always comes to my head is you hear these stories that are growing 
And you, I mean, obviously Putin still has control of the military, the intelligence, and pretty much all the political apparatus. But if there was a break in that, you have to wonder. Um, that'll be interesting to see. And, you know, watching these interviews, like where they've gone over all this stuff, I must say that I'm always hesitant of propaganda or misinformation. The fog of war seems to do that. So, of course, you see a guy call sign Caesar talking about how he's a Russian killing Russians. You always do have to be skeptical because I, I remember there was, what, the ghost of Kiev at the beginning, who, from what I understand, was completely a fabricated story that was meant to kind of energize Ukrainian propaganda. So, or maybe not Ukrainian propaganda, but the Ukrainian war effort. Just give people some energy. You know what I mean? And so it's always good to question these things. But... From everything I've seen, I think this would make sense that there are Russians who are just like, no, I have family in Ukraine. Because I, I guess this guy that they interviewed actually had family when he was visiting them. It really made him kind of go like, yeah, this war shouldn't be happening. And like, I, I think that really appeals to a lot of Ukrainians themselves to basically go like, you know, we and Russia all have things in common. And so you do have to wonder if things get worse, what happens? And now I will say also staying on the war thing for a minute is... Apparently, Ukraine launched some drone strikes deep into Russian territory. One was on an airbase. That's good or bad. I think it's good, but I never feel too comfortable when I see these type of escalations. But I've seen Russian videos that have been put out looking at some of these strikes, and it looks like the Ukrainians are not effing around, is what I would say. And the Kremlin has said, in quotes, Ukraine launched strikes deep inside Russian territory. And I'm sure that's making Putin angry. Do they retaliate? I, I don't particularly know at this time. But again, we know what we do know is that things are a complete mess right now. Now, sticking on Russia for a minute, this might be a little bit longer episode because we still have to talk about Iran next. But apparently Europe and the United States started enforcing a price cap, which is intended to limit Russia's oil income, which I think is probably a good idea, but we'll have to see. And of course, Russia's, th you know, threatened to cut supplies, blah, 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 the same thing. But Reuters writes here, the group of seven price cap on Russian seaborne oil came into force on Monday as the West tries to limit Moscow's ability to finance its war in Ukraine. But Russia has said it will not abide by the measure, even if it has to cut production. The price cap to be enforced by the G7 nations, the European Union and Australia comes on top of the EU's embargo on imports of Russian crude by sea and similar pledges by the United States, Canada, Japan, and Russia. And this is kind of interesting because, I mean, we know that a lot of places are getting Russian oil. We know the Indians are, like, getting it, reselling it. <laughs> it's not that surprising what's happening there. And it's interesting, though, because most of, and this is something I learned, oh, maybe a few weeks ago when I was doing some research for something else involving this, is that a lot of the world's shipping and insurance firms that deal with the transport of oil and Russian oil are located in G7 countries. And basically, Russia would have to abide by these price caps if it wants the countries that have the monopoly on oil shipping to do it. And so this would make it harder to keep raising prices if the Russians actually want to get it exported, right? And Reuters notes here in quotes that this allows Russian oil to be shipped to third-party countries using G7 and EU tankers, insurance companies, and credit institutions, but only if the cargo is bought at or below the, the price cap. 
Price caps in this case are probably a good idea because what we're seeing right now in the global economy involving oil prices is kind of a sham. And it's mainly caused by our good friends, the Russians right now. And I guess when you do have some sort of control over over how the oil gets places, you can do this. But I, I don't really know if it's actually going to like do much in the long run because a report out of Russia has said in quotes here, a source who asked not to be identified due to the sensitivity of the situation told Reuters that a decree was being prepared to prohibit Russian companies and traders from interacting with countries and companies guided by the cap. Now, I think Russia will still cooperate with this mainly because let's, let's be honest. I mean, Russia, cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg have some of the highest cost of living right now. Things are not looking good. You need to find a way to make profits when pretty much the entire world's cut you out. So even if you lower prices and go along with this cap, you can still make something, albeit it's a little bit less, but you can still make something. So I think that's something worth considering when we kind of get into these type of conversations. But I also saw the Germans are already getting prepared for a winter without Russian, Russian fuel. So that's going to be interesting to see. It also looks like we are seeing kind of a breakdown in certain parts of Donetsk. Um, I saw that some sort of artillery had landed in Moldova today. Yeah, it's just, I mean, excuse my French, but it's just a shit show. The whole thing is just a damn shit show. And we're going to have to see what happens next. But I think it's good we are still putting pressure on Putin for the time being. And I'm also kind of optimistic to see that there are Russians who are going, I would rather fight against this regime than be a puppet of it. The last thing I will say is that there are growing concerns about the Wagner Group, which I encourage you to go back and check out my podcast from February about them. Maybe it was March. Time's a circle at this point. But the Wagner Group with neo-Nazi ties, um, kind of allies of Putin involved in a lot of the atrocities in Syria and Libya. There are worries that what they want to accomplish and what their ambitions are might be kind of diverging from Putin's. And yeah, that'll be something we're going to have to keep following, but I should, I just wanted to mention that before we're on to the next one, because the Wagner group will just kill innocent women and children, even worse than we've seen the Russian army doing. So anyways, I want to move to Iran for a moment. So a week ago, there were some interesting reports about the niece of Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah al-Khamenei, and she basically called for foreign governments to cut ties with the Iranian regime. She also had strong criticism over what has recently been occurring in the country. This was following the crackdowns on protests and all those depressing events involving the hijab. Again, I've talked about this before, but Iran is such a pendulum, and it's such a difficult place to understand the political dynamics of because we've seen so many just extreme pendulum shifts. But a report from last week discusses how, in quotes, the Khamenei's daughter called on people around the world to urge their report or their governments to cut ties with the Iranian regime amid protests sweeping the nation and to ask their governments, in quotes, to stop any dealings with the regime. I don't think this was a big deal. I'm going to start with that. I don't think it matters anything. No iota. Nothing. Because she's been an activist for years, and from my understanding, she's been opposing the Iranian regime for a long time, even though she's related to the Ayatollah, 
who gives a crap, I guess, in this case, because just because they're related, she's criticizing. It's like, what's her name, Mary Trump, who always writes the books about her uncle Donald Trump? She clearly hates him, but they're related, but they, it doesn't mean anything's changing just because she's writing a book, you know? The mor- This morning, though, and I, I guess it was maybe last night, I did see some recent changes in what's been occurring in Iran. Apparently... Iran's attorney general has basically said during, I think it was a parliament speech, that the country should or would, depending on the reports, abolish its hateful morality police. And the morality police are kind of like the purity, the purity police in Saudi Arabia. And tasks basically involve ensuring that women wear the hijab. And I don't. I know more about Saudi Arabia than Iran, but I know they can hit you in Saudi Arabia. So, like, if you have a woman who's not wearing enough of the hijab, not covering enough of her face, they can give her some little slaps wherever they want. So, not a good, not a good situation. But I've always found these virtuous, virtue religious police organizations to be absurd. Again, we live in a fairly secular society here in the United States, so I guess maybe that just doesn't cross my mind. But. It's just interesting how these things exist. It would just sound wild to be like walking with like a a woman or like a parent or something who's a woman and to be walking around in the city and the morality police show up and remind you to wear something over your face. And if you don't, you know, there's punishment, usually physical punishment. And I guess, I mean, Saudi Arabia got rid of this, I think about five years ago now or something, but... Iran hasn't, and of course people are all up in arms, excited about the fact that the morality police is gone, but I don't know. I've been reading up on these recent events, and some do question, myself included, whether anything will change, because like I said, oh, it was probably two weeks ago now, in order to have some sort of revolution or just big change of thought, you do need an op- like an alternative, and there's currently no alternative right now, still the Khamenei as well as the clergies and the entire Iranian Islamic Republic seem to have control over everything. And I've seen people like the New York Times and CNN and way others, pretty much everyone, except for The Economist and like the BBC, pretty much everyone else make it sound like the morality police are just going away and this statement from the attorney general was a big move and everything's going away. I think that's just disingenuous and not true. I think it should be made clear that the attorney general discussing moving, like like removing the morality police and the interior ministry of Iran actually getting rid of it are two different things because the interior ministry actually runs these police. It seems like these news agencies are doing a bit of a mix between being disingenuous and too optimistic because from my understanding... Outside observers who are familiar with Iran are skeptical because, like I said, it was the attorney general. He's part of the judiciary, and he's the one that said they should abolish the morality police. But the responsibility from these police comes from the interior ministry, which has actually said nothing about it and actually doubled down on the inter- on the uh, morality morality police. And so... We'll have to see if this report is true, but I think it's tough to be celebrating something from an outside perspective when it's probably not going to happen, and probably the reporting is disingenuous. And The Economist, I think, does a more honest piece on this story. Maybe I'm biased. I love The Economist. I think it's the best best outlet out there of giving you kind of a snapshot of everything. But 
The article gives more insight into what is really happening and why the morality police may be going nowhere. The article writes here in quotes, Ruhola Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic, called the requirement of women to be veiled the flag of the revolution. Lovely, right? So the regime's sudden decision to lower it has been muted. The prosecutor general, Muhammad Jafar Montezeri, announced it during a parliamentary committee meeting. And the thing is, henceforth, in quotes here, he said, judicial confrontation will be the last stage. He told the assembly, unspecified cultural methods would be adopted instead. <laughs> In another meeting, he said a decision would be taken by mid-December on whether to abolish the mandatory hijab altogether. And basically, this sounds to me like this guy was speculating in front of parliament and putting out hopes and legislative goals. He wasn't saying this is going to happen. He also noted that judicial involvement would be the last case scenario. So to me, it sounds like this is all just the outside media hearing about this conversation and thinking it's happening. I do think it's interesting that they are having this conversation. Don't get me wrong. Like, clearly the protests, whether the regime and the Khomeini and all want to admit it or not, whether, whether they say it, it looks like these protests are pushing them. But the clerics as well, it's interesting they're talking about this. Now, I don't like the line from this speech that talked about unspecified cultural methods being adopted instead of the morality police. I don't know particularly what that means, because if you do have an Islamic Republic led by someone like the Kayatollah, look, I don't think this guy's going to back down and also even the president of iran right now raisi is quite radical compared to the previous ones and uh, yeah i think we're just wish casting i've also read that people on the streets of iran are not really celebrating either apparently the mood is really skeptical there was one female protester i think she was from eastern uh, eastern iran who was quoted in an article saying basically, it's a little too little, a little too late. And also it hasn't happened yet. I'm sorry, protester, but it hasn't happened yet. So we don't really know. And the Economist article notes here in quotes that the prospect of a regime on the defensive recalls the last months of the Shah in 1979 and may even spur the protesters to redouble their efforts. Social media groups seeking to harness the unrest have called for a three-day general, uh, general strike this week. Honestly, this does, because I, like I said, I, I really am interested in the Iranian Revolution and what happened in the late 70s with the fall of the Shah. It did seem like once he realized he was losing, he started just kind of doing bullshit defensive recalls that really didn't amount to much. Now, I think it's different, again, because the Shah lost the military and lost his security forces. Here, it doesn't seem to be the case. But it is something interesting to note is like that's why I probably don't trust what's happening is it seems like kind of a last ditch effort to just kind of keep the masses from protesting more. But anyways, I did also read recently that the economy is doing quite poorly in Iran, to put it lightly. So striking almost really couldn't be an option for a lot of people just because like that's a huge... I don't know if gamble's the right word, but that's a huge investment in your time and financial well-being in a place that maybe you can't do that. Like, I truly think Saudi Arabia, for example, is a lot different than Iran because, like, they have a lot of the similar restrictions 
on the population, but also the wealth is much different in Saudi Arabia. And when the wealth is stronger, I think people are either willing to be complacent or fight. But in Iran, I think it could be the opposite right now. Now, before we move on, actually, no, I, I should add before we move on, I wonder if those if strikes will happen, because we do have to remember that in the late 70s, the strikes on oil refineries were part of the, I guess you could say the final Achilles heel that took down the Shah. So we're going to have to see about that. Now, before we move on, I do think that even if the morality police remain, there are definitely echoes because Ebrahim Raisi, I talked about him. He's the hardline Iranian president, came into power, <coughs> excuse me, unfortunately after after a lot of sanctions were put back on Iran, the fall of the nuclear deal, etc. He did talk about, Raisi, that is, did talk about flexible methods. And I think that's something somewhat promising. I guess, ultimately, I just find Iranian politics, like I said, to be insane. And there's a crazy pendulum that swings, boom, 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 quite radically, is what I mean. You didn't, you can't see me, so what I was doing didn't make any sense. But I remember learning in college, that was undergraduate college at Chapman, that in the 1930s, the last Shah, his father banned the veil, which now they enforce, and the Shah's father in the 1930s ordered his police to rip it off women's heads. Can you imagine that in Iran right now, that you're being told to take it off? Because right now, you can get whipped if you have it off. But back then, you'd probably get whipped if you had it on. Like, that's how, to me, that is a great explanation of the radical pendulum shifts that happen in Iranian politics and culture. I think the difference, or not the difference is, but just the distinction in Iran is that you have a very like conservative Muslim rural population and a fairly educated liberal elite population in the cities, and that clash and those pendulum shifts just depend on who is kind of in power. Obviously, the Khomeini's took over significant power, so it's interesting. I think some of us just wonder when this pendulum is going to shift the other way again. Honestly, who knows? Because, like I said, I don't see the writing on the wall for another revolution. I do think the Iranian regime, while it blames the West, really has dug its own grave. Like, obviously, I don't believe the John Boltons and the Trumps and all these sanctions we did. I think they were problematic. But I do think the Iranian regime is entrenched and stupid. For example, outsiders have warned, and not just American outsiders, but even even Middle Eastern countries have warned that the regime should loosen some of its most strict dress code restrictions. We've seen that happen in a lot of the Middle East. I think the Arab Spring was kind of a wake-up call, too. It seems to me like secularization is coming to the Middle East, and dare, dare I remind us again that in Saudi Arabia, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, actually did get rid of the purity police there. Something that was actually a big deal, one of the things I like that he did... Sorry, we got a loud vehicle out there. Um, but it was something that I really liked that MBS did was he got rid of the purity police because he realized it was not effective or necessary for the society they're trying to create. But ironically, as places like Saudi Arabia, which are quite fundamentalist, while they got rid of these things, 
Iran actually last summer stepped up patrols, increased fines for infringements, and issued a new morality decree. And the people are getting more disillusioned. I just don't know. I really don't know what's next, but it's going to be problematic. And what I have to say here, what I do truly have to say here, is that I don't think we're going to see the morality police going anywhere. That is something I am certain of, because unless the entire clergy and the current Islamic regime falls... There will always be some semblance of moral authority that is being enforced on people, whether they agree with it or not. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, Podbean, Spotify, whatever else. Um, Ran a little bit long today. I hope you guys have a great, great rest of your evening. I have a podcast coming out for you guys tomorrow. And I'll be the same.